The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy with your host, Lou Augusta. Lou is one of the premier empathy consultants in the community today. In this program, Lou and his guest experts will help you understand and expand your empathy. In doing so, you may discover a side of yourself that you never even knew existed. Now, here is Lou Augusta. Hi, this is Lou Augusta. Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy. For those of you joining us live at noon Chicago time on Wednesday, April 22nd, Today is Earth Day. For those of you on replay, we're delighted you could join us on any day or time. Today, I'm excited, engaged, enthused, inspired to have special guest James Garbarino, professor of psychology, Loyola University of Chicago. The occasion for this conversation is the publication of Jim's new book, Listening to Killers, the full subtitle, Lessons Learned from My 20 Years as a Psychological Expert Witness in Murder Cases. Dr. Garbarino holds the Maud C. Clark Chair in Humanistic Psychology and was a founding director of the Center for the Human Rights of Children at Loyola University, Chicago. He served as a consultant and advisor to a wide range of organizations, including the National Committee to Prevent Child Abuse, the National Institute for Mental Health, the U.S. Advisory Board on Child Abuse and Neglect, and the FBI. In addition to Lost Boys, Why Our Sons Turn Violent and How We Can Save Them. That's a book. Dr. Garbarino has authored or co-authored over 20 books and has appeared on CNN, Fox News Channel, MSNBC, and moving up the food chain, so to speak, now, a rumor of empathy. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Great to have you here. Let's get right into it. The job, the task up front, help me set the context for the conversation about talking to killers, listening to killers. Well, you know, I think uh, the challenge of connecting with people generally is one that you're certainly well familiar with and most of us aspire to improve. Yeah. For the last 20 years, I've, I've taken on a special part of that, and that is trying to connect with killers, uh, people on death row, people facing the death penalty, people facing life in prison. Now, the, the context is I've asked by their... Uh, defense team to try to understand them a bit and then communicate with the court uh, something about their lives to to take the often sort of brutal, horrible, monstrous act that they've committed 
and sort of walk it back through their lives back to infancy and childhood. And so to provide a kind of developmental analysis of how you get from being an innocent baby to a, a guilty killer. And the beginning for that certainly is this uh, attempt at a kind of radical empathy to form a connection with someone who, who in many ways stands on the other side uh, of the human experience and someone who, frankly, most people don't seem to want to know about. They, uh, they're afraid, they're disgusted. Yeah. That, um, you know, this is so, they are, the killers are so fundamentally the other that it's quite a challenge to, to bring them close and, and uh, connect to them. Well, you mentioned, you call out radical empathy, and I want to note that, and you call that out also uh, in the book itself. Uh, and I want to come back to that maybe by way of unfolding the context for the conversation, you could begin by telling me about some of the people you've met. Well, <clears throat> you're there in a cell, right? You go to a maximum security prison, you hand in your cell phone, your laptop, your photo ID, the person who, who is sitting in front of you? What's, what's going on? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, uh, mostly these are men, you know, more than 90% of killers are men. Yeah. There's various reasons for that having to do both with culture and, uh, and biology. Um, they're, they're as young as 14. They're as old as uh, you know, 53. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. So um, a young uh, man in his 30s that I interviewed in, uh, in Mississippi uh, he was on death row already for a murder he had committed, and he was getting a new trial for that murder. He had killed someone in prison uh, since he had been incarcerated. <clears throat> this guy was so scary that um, whenever he appeared in court, uh, the prison would send six correction officers to sort of surround him because they were afraid he was going to explode, as he was prone to do. Very scary man. Um, you know, big bulging prison muscles and prison tattoos. You know, most of the time when I interview these guys, I can get the guards to unshackle them. Um, but in his case, they absolutely refused because they felt he was so dangerous. Uh, so he was shackled at his hands and a chain that shackled his legs, and that was attached to a bolt in the floor. So we, we, you know, we talked. We uh, we talked. I listened. That's why the book is called "Listening to Killers." I listened to his story. I had records. I had uh, results of psychological tests, as I often do. Um, but at, towards the end of the interview, after we heard his story about abuse and torture and deprivation and childhood and the impact of racism on his development, he's an African-American man. And you, know, you probably know that about half of the Murders that take place in the United States each year are committed by African-American males, uh, despite the fact they constitute about 10% of the population. So the impact of racism and deprivation and poverty has encapsulated him. But as we got to the end of the interview, I asked him a question that I often ask. And I said, well, is there something about you that it would surprise people to learn? Can you tell me something about you that people would be surprised to learn? And he, thought for a minute, he said, yeah, he said, I, I cry myself to sleep every night. 
I cry myself to sleep every night. And I, I was actually, in case, able to check the records, and you know, the evidence is there that he does, and he has been for a long, long time. There was records from when he was 15 years old in prison, and yeah. cellmate commented that he cried himself to sleep every night. Hmm. And what really struck me was this terribly scary, dangerous man, and there's no doubt about that, is the best way to understand him is as an untreated, traumatized child who inhabits and controls that big, scary man. So in that, he's, he's in a sense, representative of an awful lot of the, the people that I listened to over the years. Yeah. Well, I mean, let me give back to you what I think I've heard. I mean, this is a rich field of distinctions here, and I heard a lot. You said a lot. But one point that stands out, and to your last point, so there's this as you say, scary individual, and that's not anybody's fantasy. He's exploded when he goes to court. They send extra guards. In this, oftentimes they'll unshackle the prisoner so that you can have more freedom in the conversation with him, but not in this case. And psychologically inside, this guy is maybe five years old, seven years old. Psychologically, it's a child inside the body of a scary, dangerous adult. That's right. And, uh, you know, one reason why... And how did we get here? I mean, right? I mean, there's a lot of implications. Uh, Go ahead. I mean, run, feel free to run with the ball. But we we got here because uh, he was traumatized and afflicted with uh, all kinds of abandonment and rejection and then you load on the poverty and the racism, and then you know he's probably has some biological, uh, neurological vulnerabilities, and so and there's a sense in which you get a kind of arrested development, uh, and that's well, that's a key phrase here, right? I mean, he's still five years old inside, emotionally, psychologically, because development stopped at some point. Yeah, and uh, you know one reason why that's so important in understanding violence is the work of a researcher named Richard Tremblay, French-Canadian researcher, who has found that, you know, although people think adolescents are the most aggressive human beings, it's very clear that it is actually preschoolers. That if you, you know, when he does assessments of kicking, biting, hitting, punching, poking, uh, it is, you know, it is preschoolers who have the highest rates at 20 months of age, Something like 90% of the boys and 80% of the girls are observed to engage in these clear, aggressive, violent behaviors. But we don't tend to see that because they're so little and weak. Tremblay puts it this way. says, if, if all the toddlers in America went to bed tonight and tomorrow morning they woke up and they were, they were all six foot two and weighed 220 pounds, he says, what would happen is by tomorrow night, uh, most of the parents and early childhood educators would be maimed or dead because these now very powerful children who have problems, who have very grave limitations about emotional regulation, about you know, thinking clearly what's called executive function, they, with the power now of being big, they would have done a lot of damage. And as I say, you know, so many of the times what I'm sitting with in a prison is in effect, a six foot two, two hundred and twenty pound toddler who, whose thinking and whose emotional life is much more like that. But now they're very dangerous because they're big and scary, 
And in addition, they may be very angry and very sad. Uh, so, so that's a big insight because once you, once you can get in touch with that, then I think it's more, it's easier to, to, to build a sort of empathic connection because you're trying to connect with that child rather than just with that scary adult. Well, this was one thing that was eye-opening to me about reading this book, uh, listening to killers, uh, and trying to get myself, my head around uh, why killing makes perfect sense at the moment somebody pulls the trigger, and it's often gun violence, and gun, we can talk about that. Also, guns really lower the bar as opposed to having to stab somebody or, or strangle them to death, which is another whole other story. Uh, the, the heritage and uh, uh, legacy of slavery, to a bold statement of the obvious, has not done a lot for the African-American family. It's destroyed families, it's crushed families, it's created single-parent families. It's, I mean, there's a long story, well-documented, a, a confronting narrative here. And so many of the people who end up being incarcerated come up in uh, parenting situations where the parents are parents in name only. A parent, I mean, my, so I'm going to give a short lecture here <laughs> uh, and then see what you think of it. I mean, if I had to define a parent in like one sentence, it would be somebody who sets boundaries. Don't stick the screwdriver into the outlet. Don't ride the skateboard into the busy intersection. And many of the, and many parents, not to blame the parents, but they're just, been incarcerated themselves, have have come up in an inner city, or even when not in an inner city, in a, in a setting and a milieu that encapsulates the worst features of an inner city setting, which results in a kind of what you call a war zone, a war zone psychology, a war zone mentality. And, and you can take the child or the adolescent out of the war zone, but can you take the war zone out of the adolescent or the child? That's a question. Yeah, it, you know, it gets to both how this emerges. Uh, it also gets to what the process of rehabilitation and transformation needs to look at. You know, when you look at the experience of some of these guys, uh, in talking about how you develop a war zone mentality, I was talking with a guy recently in the case, and I, he was describing to me how the first, the first time he witnessed a shooting, he was eight years old. And I said to him, well, you know, if we took 100 eight-year-olds at random, how many of that 100 do you think would have witnessed a shooting by the time they were eight? He thought for a minute, he said, oh, 60 or 70. And when I told him that the actual number across the country is more like three or four percent, he was flabbergasted. Yeah. He lives in a different world. Another guy recently, you, since you mentioned parenting, another guy recently said it wasn't until he was 14 years old that he ever met anyone who lived, who had a father who lived with them in the house. So you know, chilling, it, appalling, it, and chilling it's both. So different. It's a different world. It is a different world. And it reminds me, I mean, some of this conversation about war zone, and, and you describe this in the book, reminds us of situations in Central America during ver the various civil wars that they've had, the Honduras, Guatemala, 
uh, and, and in the barrios in Brazil, which are in the news because of what the Olympics and various World Cup events, they're trying to clean that up, which largely consists of police military like operations, very also very confronting and can be damaging. Uh, and so uh, this is what we mean by trauma. You're eight years old and you see a member of your family or even a stranger shot, uh, violence and, and, and it you know, it lives on. I mean, you can, what's, what's it take to recover from that? I mean, the, 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 these people, these people, that's already trouble if one is using such a description, but uh, hypervigilance and being on the defensive, uh, you know, trying to flesh out what this is about. Mm-hmm. Can you help me do that? Well, you know, you mentioned Central America. I worked yeah. on the case of a guy who grew up in El Salvador during the worst of the, uh, political violence there and, you know, witnessed his grandfather be shot in front of his eyes. His mother had gone to the States. Eventually, in the midst of seeing bodies and all this turmoil and trauma, she came and got him, brought him with her to Los Angeles, but right into a neighborhood that was dominated by the MS-13 gang. And he, you know, sort of found his way into the MS-13 gang and the combination of this trauma and his emotional deprivation from you know, being separated from his mother. His father was in prison in El Salvador. He was a very good candidate for that gang and became uh, a repeated killer as part of that experience. Uh, to change someone like him you know, is, a, is an enormous task because you really have to find a way to give him new ideas and have him practice those new ideas and teach him techniques like meditation to get some control over his emotional life. And then it may be possible to rework his, his consciousness, the good news being that then it may rework his brain because brains are in an interactive relationship with experience. Yes. May, we may be able to shape him, although... Well, conversation does change our brain neurons along with drugs. Now, I'm going to interrupt you here, uh, Jim, because we're going to have a sponsorship break momentarily. No money, no mission. And the mission is an important one. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Professor James Garbarino, author, Listening to Killers, Lessons Learned from My, that is Professor Garbarino's 20 years years as a psychological expert, witness in murder cases. We will be right back. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. Lou Augusta is one of the premier educators and empathy consultants in action in the community today. As the author of three books on empathy and a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago Philosophy Department on Empathy and Interpretation, Lou provides three services. Empathy Consulting and Education, in which he coaches individuals and organizations on how to expand the results they are getting in their life, business, or organization by expanding their empathy. Individual Psychotherapy Services, to help with recovery from trauma or other confronting personal issues, where Lou's commitment is to provide a gracious and generous listening. 
as providing access to shifting out of resignation into engagement, action, and accomplishment, and delivering the empathy training seminar and workshop for groups where the participants get access to the deep infrastructure of empathy. For further details, see Lou on the web at louagusta.com. That is spelled L-O-U-A-G-O-S-T-A or phone 773-203-0269. Again, louagusta.com or phone 773-203-0269. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to A Rumor of Empathy. To reach Lou Augusta or his guest today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to a rumor of empathy at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Thanks, and welcome back to the show. This is Lou Augusta, and I'm talking with my special guest, James Garbarino, professor, Loyola University of Chicago, about his new book, Listening to Killers, Lessons Learned from My 20 Years as a Psychological Expert Witness in Murder Cases. In the first segment, and in the book itself, uh, Jim, you called out radical empathy. And I thought it would be useful for us to define our terms. terms. One thought that I have in listening, listening to anybody, it's relatively easy. I'm not saying it's ever easy to listen, but let's say it's relatively easy to listen to victims and survivors. At least this is a story that one has a certain openness to how one survives, even if one is re-traumatized vicariously by the difficult matter. And listening to Killer, in my take, raises the bar on empathy. How do we define empathy for purposes of our conversation? Well, I think there's at least two important elements. One is the what I call the circle of caring. The idea yeah, say that, more about that, if you would. Well, you know, the idea that there, there are people that are sort of inside the circle to which we think we owe our highest moral values and... Uh, in fact, most of our moral thinking takes place within the circle of caring. And then once you get outside the circle of caring, uh, we don't think so much in moral terms because uh, they're, they're not beings that are worthy of our uh, most intense moral and emotional uh, connection. So, for example, um, you know, for some people, dogs are simply objects. Uh, and they're objects to be disposed of or used or brutalized. For other people, dogs are beings who are part of their intimate life. And when it comes to people, of course, 
you know, it's us versus them, and the them tends to be outside the circle. Killers are particularly outside. And so some of it is almost a, a sort of cognitive or intellectual decision about who counts and who matters and who is worthy. But beyond that, there is this emotional openness. As you said, being open to a victim, uh, it's not hard to get a victim into, inside your circle of caring. There's a compelling moral case. And while it may be upsetting, it doesn't. It, it, your feelings about opening to that are not rage or anger or hostility. But when you're talking about killers, it requires a, an extreme willingness to look at the speck of humanity in front of you despite any monstrous act. Let me give you an example. One of the cases I worked on was a man who, a man in, you know, in his early 40s who one day uh, pulled out an automatic weapon, which is another whole issue why people have automatic weapons in their houses. Oh, yeah. And murdered his wife and his two stepchildren. Mm. Um, and then he barricaded the house and the SWAT team came and he opened fire on the SWAT team. So there was no doubt that he actually had done this. But uh, he had complete what is called dissociative amnesia about it in the sense that he did, really did not remember doing this. Everybody who had assessed him uh, concluded that. So it was this odd sort of situation that he's standing trial for this murder. And of course, for me, as somebody whose background is in child development, yeah. it's particularly difficult to reach out to somebody who's killed children. Yeah. But, but I needed to, if for no other reason than to understand him, as well as to try to bring him back into the human community after he's committed such a monstrous act. So given that he had this amnesia, the way I approached him was by starting out by saying on our first contact, look, I just want to say at the start how sorry I am for your loss. Because from his point of view, it was a loss. He thought someone must have broken into his house and knocked him out and murdered his wife and the two stepchildren. So when I said that to him, he teared up and he said, thanks, man, nobody's ever said that before. That in fact, nobody had ever started from where he was psychologically and emotionally. And so that's, that's an example, I think, of sort of gravity. A very powerful one. I must say, it, my head is spinning. I'm just full disclosure. First of all, I accept your description of the neurological disorder. I mean, there's something, there's an absence there. Something goes horribly wrong in the neural networks. He commits this, and one might speculate that the awfulness of the perpetration of the crime itself, killing his wife and children itself is capable of being triggering the amnesia, given that at some level he was a human being. And then there's also the challenge, if I may say so, uh, of understanding James Garbarino. I get your commitment to the humanity. And I'm going to not be careful not to put words in your mouth, but I want the listeners to understand very carefully and clearly that you're not advocating for letting these people, these people, once again, that awful phrase, the individuals you have interviewed out of jail, you're advocating understanding why they kill so we can do better as a community and as a species, perhaps, in uh, preventing death and destruction. Am I getting it right? Well, that, yeah, you know, I, that's an important part of this. That 
you know, many of these guys are so damaged that unless there's some of some miraculous transformation, rehabilitation, uh, it's never going to be safe for them to leave. Although many of them, you know, can become safe, uh, particularly the ones who are young at the outset. You know, I've worked on a number of cases of guys who I, by the time I interviewed them in their mid thirties, but they, they were 16 when they committed the murder that, that gets them there. Uh, so this isn't, you know, so say more about that. I think that's an important part of your work and you make a powerful case in the book itself about, you know, somebody who's, uh, uh, as you say, 16 and is carrying a gun to school because he's getting jumped and beaten up. And to him, it looks like self-defense, but to the jury, it looks like, uh, not self-defense. There are different various descriptions, you know, I mean, the best defense is a good offense sometimes. Right. And all of a sudden he's no in prison and no chance of parole. Can you speak to that whole set of confronting issues? Well, I think that, you know, we, we've re made some progress in doing away with the death penalty for juvenile offenders. And in that we're sort of joining the rest of the civilized world. It partly flows from recognition that, uh, you know, teenagers are not operating with a full deck in a sense. You're uh, right. We'll, uh, we'll pause for a guffaw at the moment, but there's a, a fundamental neurological, psychological uh, truth to that. Yeah, the brain is still maturing the ability to regulate emotions and think through particularly stressful situations is, is not fully formed. You know, in a sense, for most people, it's never fully formed. In situations of overwhelming stress and arousal, even most adults may not think clearly, may not be able to manage their feelings, but certainly that's particularly true for teenagers. And so I think it's very important that we recognize that uh, if a 16-year-old commits a murder, I, my personal view is they should never be sentenced without possibility of parole because they're somewhere down the line, 15 years, 20 years, they may well have undergone both transformation and maturation to the point where they can come back into the community in a peaceful, positive way. Uh, I've certainly worked on a couple of cases like that. And the guys, you know, have rejoined the human community and, and are, are thriving, uh, who having committed murders at 16. Uh, so I, I think, you know, in some ways... And they're now 30 years old. Now they're now 35 or yeah. 36 years old. Yeah. You know, we, I think generally, you know, most people would agree that 16-year-olds really shouldn't have the authority to make life-altering decisions. 16-year-olds, you know, shouldn't... If a 16-year-old said, I'd like to have, uh, you know, my nose amputated, because I think that would be cool, most of us would say, well, that, that's sort of crazy. You wouldn't let a 16-year-old decide that. Um, and, and to me, that's sort of the, some of the same issue that you're you're granting them the authority to make permanent decisions when their minds and, and spirits and hearts are not really up to the task. Yeah. So there is that. And then there's also, to me, this sort of double jeopardy that society was not there to protect these kids from the abuse and the deprivation they suffered as children. And now we're going to sort of penalize them for becoming what, uh, you know, what they were made to become. Uh, and so, you know, the way that sort of the way that the, the tires hit the road here is on the concept of choice. Yeah. Well, are very likely to say, well, he chose to kill at 16. 
But the research on the degree to which these choices really represent informed consent, they represent mature judgment and so on, and they represent uh, a kind of thinking which is almost endemic to the world they live in, that should be understood because most of us don't live in that war zone. And we haven't been shot before. We haven't been stabbed before. We haven't had relatives who've been killed uh, on the street or in the, that little war. And as a result, our ability to understand the way they experience the world is very limited and the choices they make are very limited. So I do think that you know, taking the long view, particularly with the young offenders, we need to have a much greater openness to the possibility of transformation because you know, many of them do over the 15, 16 years that follows. Yes. You know, the other thing I and, want to Well, I, I mean, I, you're there. Uh, it puts me in mind of one thing I want to call out in the matter of incarcerating young people. I want to quote you to yourself. As you say, when somebody goes to prison, whether they're young or old, they either become a monster living into the dehumanizing situation that often exists in prisons where human beings are put into cages, or they become a monk, they, it, as if taking religious orders, one might say. And it sounds like in some cases, I mean, my one question is just practically, how do the monks survive with all the monsters around, right? I mean, uh, but it, I mean, this matter of incarcerating young people, you know, I'm not sure I have, can articulate the exact question here other than to say, uh, can you unfold and speak more about this matter of widespread incarceration, putting young people in prison? Uh, the, the, one, the only other thing I could call out is, uh, according to the U.S. Constitution, there, there are, uh, it, it is a law against cruel and unusual punishment. Maybe there's an argument to be made here. What do you think of that? Well, I think, um, you know, the United States has about 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated people. Uh, we are spectacularly bad at keeping people out of prison. Uh, if you, you know, look at, uh, for example, Scandinavian countries, uh, I was watching uh, a television program about a Swedish detective. And the, the most shocking thing about it was the sentences that people would get after he caught the criminals, you know, I'd be thinking, wow, boy, if this was happening in Illinois, we're looking at, you know, 25 to life. And it says the sentence was, you know, three to five years. Uh, and the research shows that, you know, it's shorter incarceration leads to better outcomes and longer incarceration for a whole variety of reasons, particularly when young people are involved. So I think there's some radical rethinking that needs to happen here about this. You put a kid in jail, you put him in prison, and among other things, you increase the likelihood that he will be anally raped, that he will be drawn into this vicious uh, culture. Uh, it is remarkable how some of them are able to develop a more monk-like existence where they disconnect from the viciousness around them. They don't participate. They take advantage of every educational opportunity. They begin to read. I, I can't tell you the number of young guys who... You know, I'm sure when they were in high school, they never picked up a book. Yeah. If they go to prison, they start to read. And the act of reading changes their brains, almost independent of the content. Uh, they start to engage in meditation. They start to develop a spiritual life. And all of this 
doesn't just change the words they say, it actually changes the brain that does the thinking and feeling. And it, these remarkable transformations do take place and they're well documented. And we could have a lot more of it if we took a more developmental and rehabilitative approach to these kids rather than a punitive and sort of detention oriented. I mean, the idea sort of is, well, if we lock them up for 30 or years or life, at least we don't have to worry about him killing anyone again, which in one sense is true, except the people he may kill are other inmates or perhaps even guards. Uh, but it's such a waste. It's a waste of human potential. There's a lot of intelligence locked up. There's a lot of creativity locked up. Uh, I chaired a panel of former gang members, all of whom had come out and done good things in their lives. Yeah, cease fire, cease fire. But, yes. I, you know, I mean, if you can't get rid of the guns, at least stop the shooting. Yes. I'm going to call that out. I mean, that's not a question, but, you know, run well, with, run you know, with the ball. Well, it's very clear that, uh, yeah. um, you know, it is the gun sh- gun violence that really differentiates us from other societies that are more, let's say, come across as safer. Uh, and, you know, in fact, uh, as you know from reading this book, that um, the murder numbers don't even represent the extent of the violence. The FBI did a report a few years ago that concluded if medical trauma technology today were at the same level that it was in the 1930s, the murder rate today would be eight times higher than it is. So we, you know, that our ability to patch up the dead yes. bodies obscures just how much violence is going on. And you know, the more we connect with the, the psychological development that leads to this violence, I agree, the better we'll be able to prevent it and rehabilitate it when it occurs. But the first point is, you know, as the point of your whole program is, being willing to make that empathic connection, uh, to not shy away, to not close your eyes and ears and yes. say these are monsters and lock them up forever. Well, you know, I want to continue with that point because uh, we are going to go to a break in about two minutes. But uh, So hold that thought. I recall uh, a year, over a year ago, when we had a great conversation in a coffee shop around Loyola, well, you know, you had reached out to me. I sent you a copy of my book on empathy, and you said to me, Lou, I haven't got a job for you, but let's have a cup of coffee, right? And let's mix it up here. And at that time, if I may say so, I mean, it's not a requirement to endorse empathy to be on this show, but at that time, you were not sure about the role of empathy or its relevance. And in this latest book, Listening to Killers, you call out empathy, you speak about radical empathy, you have a definition of it. Uh, and uh, that made me think, perhaps, uh, that your thinking about empathy was invo- evolving and, of course, involving. And so um, maybe we can start the conversation now, or at least you can can think about it. Uh, and then, okay, so I'll I'll make the call here. Hold the thought, and when we come back for from break, we're going to continue our conversation with my special guest, James Garbarino, about his new book, Listening to Killers, Lessons Learned from 20 Years' Experience as a Psychological Expert Witness in Murder Cases, just out from University of California Press, ucpress.edu. We'll be right back.
success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Lou Augusta is one of the premier educators and empathy consultants in action in the community today. As the author of three books on empathy and a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago Philosophy Department on Empathy and Interpretation, Lou provides three services. Empathy Consulting and Education, in which he coaches individuals and organizations on how to expand the results they are getting in their life, business, or organization by expanding their empathy. Individual Psychotherapy Services to help with recovery from trauma or other confronting personal issues where Lou's commitment is to provide a gracious and generous listening as providing access to shifting out of resignation into engagement, action, and accomplishment and delivering the empathy training seminar and workshop for groups where the participants get access to the deep infrastructure of empathy. For further details, see Lou on the web at louagusta.com. That is spelled L-O-U-A-G-O-S-T-A or phone 773-203-0269. Again, louagusta.com or phone 773-203-0269. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at voiceamericaempowerment.com. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to A Rumor of Empathy. To reach Lou Augusta or his guest today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to a rumor of empathy at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Thanks, and welcome back to A Rumor of Empathy. This is Lou Augusta in conversation with James Garbarino, author, Listening to Killers Lessons Learned from 20 Years' Experience as a Psychological Expert Witness in Murder Cases. Before we went to break, I was talking to Jim and speculating. Read a couple of your books, actually several of them, Lost Boys, The Positive Psychology of Personal Transformation, Leveraging Resilience for Life Change, Children and the Dark Side of Human Experience. And previously, you had not much called out the distinction empathy. I think your work, if I may say so, is filled and enriched by empathy, but the use of the word itself is another story. And now, in the latest book, Listening to Killers, there's a, an explicit 
conversation about empathy, radical empathy, the circle of caring. Has your thinking around empathy, how has your thinking around empathy evolved, involved? Any thoughts on that? Well, two thoughts. One, I think um, my conversations with you and my exposure to you has certainly highlighted the role of empathy in human experience. But I think the other thing is that so writing this book, Listening to Killers, one of the, you know, we went through a lot of possible titles. One of them was I Listened to Killers. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of brought the attention back on me in a way that I think in earlier books was not there so much. So it really highlighted uh, my understanding of the centrality of empathy in my ability to do the evaluations of these men. And so I think that sort of flowed into a more explicit focus on uh, the role of empathy coming back from them. Um, but the, the main thing was this focus on understanding what I was doing in terms of empathy. Uh, and then, you know, trying this out on people, trying out the material, trying the book testifying in, in these murder cases and seeing that the lack of empathy for the killer or the defendant was the you know the starting impediment to reaching a, a humane and just response to their their cases. So I think there has been both an evolution and a sort of bringing to the forefront what you do see in the new book, Listening to Killers. Well, thank you for that. And it puts me in mind of the perhaps next logical question: uh, empathy for the survivors, empathy for the victims, empathy. For for the killers, how does trauma and the war zone mentality affect the development of empathy in those individuals who eventually end up as killers and on death row? What are your thoughts? What's your guidance there? I mean, you've had some amazing lessons learned here. I'm just, I got to call out, reading changes your brain. I love that. That's so great. I mean, I, you know, put it on the tape again, if I may say so. But more to the point, you know, not only read, they didn't get enough reading, definitely. Uh, and how does, so how does trauma affect the development of empathy? Well, you know, there's, there's at least three kinds of trauma. One is a single incident, a really bad day, like living uh, near the World Trade Center in Manhattan on 9-11. Yeah. The bad day, that's sort of a classic single traumatic event. Uh, the good news about that is it doesn't, you know, it, it creates some symptoms sometimes and it, people remember it. But it and it is a bad day, by the way. It is a bad day, yes. Yeah. It's, it's a terrible day. But the therapy of reassurance kicks in the next day that things are back to normal and that's very healing. There may be some alteration in the way people respond and deal with it, but it's pretty good news about that. Then there's type 2 trauma, which some people call complex trauma which is multiple incidents. If you live in one of these war zones, you know, there's a shooting today, but the problem is there was a shooting last month and you expect there'll be a shooting next month. And so the ability of the therapy of reassurance to recalibrate you is very limited. And you do find more sort of symptoms, more outcomes connected with those multiple incidents of trauma, which include uh, shallow relationships, uh, distrust of people, the kinds of social relationships or lack thereof that impinge on empathy, where empathy becomes uh, almost risky for people because you need to be very protective of yourself. 
But then there's this third kind of trauma, which is pervasive, chronic, severe trauma that runs through, you know, particularly early childhood. Yeah. Uh, and where well, I don't even have necessarily language to symbolize or represent exactly. it. And, and so, it's, yeah. So, so you can't remember it in a narrative form. And the list of outcomes is, includes a whole, you know, 23 or 24 kinds of outcomes, uh, some of which are direct threats to empathy. Uh, dissociation, where you disconnect to, to survive. Uh, all these sorts of strategies and tactics that kids use to survive that kind of chronic abuse and traumatic life, it, it, it makes empathy uh, a long shot for, for most of them. So, you know, it is implicated in the development of the most dangerous individuals. If it reaches a really extreme point, we might, you know, they might even get called psychopaths. And certainly one of the defining characteristics of a psychopath is a sort of utter lack of emotional empathy for others. The best they can manage is a sort of cognitive empathy in which they intellectually figure out what the other person must be feeling and then act in response to that. Usually the way they act in response to that is manipulation or exploitation, but they, they figure things out. What they don't have is this, this sort of heart-to-heart -heart connection that you know, most of us aspire to and, and allows uh, relationships to thrive. So the trauma is, is, you know, is one of the principal threats to the development of empathy. And then, of course, almost paradoxically, it becomes the principal threat to helping the traumatized person because particularly these type 3 trauma cases, uh, they don't come across as victims they because they can't tell a story of victimization. They come across as antisocial, aggressive, crazy, disconnected people and to have empathy with them requires, you know, extraordinary efforts. Yeah. I think in my own life, it, certainly in these last 20 years, I've tried to fine-tune my ability to have empathy uh, with them, both, you know, as, uh, as a source of compassion for their suffering, but also as the opening to, to see their experience more clearly, to represent it back to a judge and a jury. And I, I, you know, I see the next 20 years in part as an opportunity to represent that back to the larger society. And obviously one purpose of this book, Listening to Killers, is to allow others into that world so they can come out of it and say, you know, I, I have to look at these killers in a different way. They still may be dangerous. You still, you know, I've sat across some guys who I think are so dangerous and who are so damaged they may never, without some, you know, without God stepping in and touching their forehead and making a miracle, yeah. they're going to be safe. But uh, but that but it doesn't mean we should destroy them for it. I well, think. I mean, and be open to the miracle too. I'm not necessarily saying that will be valid in going before a parole board, or a matter of that. But there is a matter of where is there hope in this matter, and is there you know you talk about stories of rehabilitation, recovery, and transformation and redemption, and uh, that is not a logical outcome, but it may make sense to call out some of the work, I want to say, of uh, uh, Robert Zahar. Am I getting his name right? Zagar. Zagar, thank you, Robert Zagar, in uh, doing some real science about predicting outcomes of letting people uh, out on parole if there is a uh, logical process that would result in believing that uh, they will be a contribution.
Any thoughts on that? Well, you know, his work, I think, is really extraordinary because he's developed a, a package of predictors uh, that both predict who, which high-risk kids are going to end up committing violence, and then if they've committed violence, which ones are likely to commit again after they've been through education and rehabilitation. Just to give you an example of how powerful his work is, uh, based on his work in Chicago, uh, there was an initiative that targeted high-risk kids, and it provided three things. One, a jobs program, so they had income, they had the time occupied, they had connection with pro-social enterprise. Number two, it provided anger management, which reflects the, the fact that their emotional regulation problems need to be addressed. And three, it involved mentoring. So it meant that they were hooked up with a pro-social mature adult who could sort of show them the ropes about being a better human being. The results were published in the journal Science just a few months ago, and the finding was that intervention reduced murders by 41% in that targeted group. So that's very encouraging. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't be sort of hopeless about this. Even in war zone environments, it's possible to help people pull back from the most extreme forms of violence and in some cases even uh, divert their pathway to get on a more positive pathway. And uh, I certainly think that listening to killers is a step in understanding this process so we can intervene and, and preventively earlier on. Well, that's a powerful point, and rarely are people made better by being incarcerated, although sometimes it's necessary to do so. And the, you make a strong case for allocating resources to education. I, I read, was reading about one mother of an incarcerated killer bought him psychotherapy services. She had the resources. You don't often get psychotherapy in going to prison, and oftentimes it's needed and the individuals would benefit from it and uh, help in the process of recovery. Yes, his case, you know, was one of, the, one of those positive cases that really sustains me because he wrote to me from prison. He had been in prison for almost 16 years, uh, but he did have the possibility of parole, uh, his mother had paid for a psychotherapist to come visit him yeah. every week the first two years he was in prison at 16, and it started the positive ball rolling. And now I was able with great okay. confidence to say, you know, he's better, he's ready, and he's been out now for a couple of years, and he's doing positive pro-social things. On that inspirational note, Jim, I'm going to have to interrupt you because we're up against the end of the hour. And I just want to share, I want to thank you profusely for sharing and communicating. The rumor of empathy is no rumor. Empathy lives in the work you're doing, Jim, and in the book itself, Listening to Killers and the contribution you are making. Uh, next week, I want to invite the listening audience, invite the listening audience to join me as I have a conversation with Alex, Alice Dreger, author Galileo's Middle Finger, What Happens When Science Bumps Head with Social Justice. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in to A Rumor of Empathy with Lou Augusta. Please join us again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope to see you again next week.